0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21.
1: Hey, short waivers, Rebecca Hersher here. Hurricane Ian left entire neighborhoods in ruin, which means hundreds of thousands of people are now turning to the federal government for help. Last year, my colleague Ryan Kelman and I investigated why some of the people who need help the most don't get it. Our reporting brought us to another part of the country that suffered from hurricanes in recent years, Louisiana. And today, we bring you that story, which originally aired in July 2021.
0: You're listening to Shortwave from NPR.
1: Oh, shoot. Did we bring the cookies? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. In May, producer Ryan Kelman and I drove out to De Quincey, Louisiana. This is southwest Louisiana. It's really flat and marshy. The roads are in rough shape. This area got hit by two hurricanes last year.
0: So this must be.
1: Yeah. The person we're going to meet is named Donnie Spite. She lives in a gray mobile home a couple miles off the main road. It's surrounded by tall pine trees, so it's pretty quiet. Except for her chihuahuas, Goliath and Popper. Goliath is really small. Donnie's husband Steve chose him because Goliath was the littlest one in the litter. Steve worked as a pipe fitter in the petrochemical plants nearby, and his nickname was Termite.
0: They call him that because he he could crawl through them pipes. They were short as I am but smaller.
1: By the time they brought Goliath home, Steve was retired and he used a wheelchair to get around. And Goliath was always on his lap.
0: That puppy had been in a wheelchair up until two months ago. Oh, wow. wow. Or two months in one day.
1: It's so fresh,
0: huh? I knew it was coming. Yeah. I've been taking care of him for so long.
1: This is why we were visiting Donnie Spite. To understand what her final months with her husband were like, and how those months might have been easier if the federal government treated disaster survivors more fairly. Because six months before Steve died, the Spite's house was badly damaged in a hurricane. The couple applied for money from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. But they didn't get the help they needed. She says it's not FEMA's fault that Steve died. He'd been sick a long time. His diabetes symptoms were getting worse, as were his lung conditions. But it did make things a lot harder. And Donnie's experience trying to get help from FEMA echoes those of countless low-income disaster survivors across the country. I'm Rebecca Hersher, a climate reporter.
2: And I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Today on the show, we look at the unfairness that's baked into the government's response to disasters. When a disaster like a hurricane or wildfire destroys your house, the clock starts ticking. Every day without stable shelter puts people in danger. It's harder for sick people to take their medications. Medical devices stop working. Heat and mold threaten everyone's health. The federal government is supposed to help prevent that cascade of problems.
1: But an NPR investigation finds that the people who need help the most are often less likely to get it. And the government knows it has a problem.
2: You're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
2: So, Becky, before you tell me about your visit with Donnie, help me understand the background here. What is FEMA's role after disasters like hurricanes?
1: Well, it's pretty straightforward. You know, FEMA is supposed to help people with their immediate needs. And safe, stable shelter is the big one. So people who own homes can apply Mm -hmm. for money to repair damage or find a new place to live if the house was completely destroyed. And there's also money to help cover the cost of rent or a hotel room. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. FEMA brings in temporary trailers that you might have heard about, and that's Mm -hmm. emergency housing.
2: And what do we know about who ends up getting that money?
1: Right, so that's the question I've been asking for years now, actually. So, all the way back in 2017, I noticed that poorer people seemed to be struggling to get adequate help from FEMA. And it was anecdotal. I mostly mm-hmm. noticed it in Houston after Hurricane Harvey. Back mm-hmm. then, there were some studies coming out that suggested that FEMA assistance was disproportionately benefiting whiter, wealthier people.
2: And I imagine you asked FEMA about that, and what did they say?
1: Yeah, I did. And basically, they said that their programs were designed to be fair. Everyone can apply for help under the same criteria, so it's a level playing field. Then fast forward a couple years, and I heard from a source of mine that FEMA had been doing some internal analyses about this exact topic. So, Hmm. you know, I'm a reporter. I asked to see them. And initially, Mm -hmm. FEMA denied that. NPR appealed. Months went by. But eventually, they gave these records to me. And the records showed low-income disaster survivors are less likely to receive some types of housing assistance from FEMA. When they do receive money, they
2: often receive less. Hmm. Is this because FEMA payments are based on how big or expensive your home was? So if you're rich and have a bigger, more expensive home, you get more money.
1: Yeah, I think that's like a natural guess that a lot of people would make, and it's likely part uh-huh. of the story. But it appears to be more complicated than that. So researchers hmm. I talked to said that home size does not account for the disparity, and that kind of gets at what you were saying. The data suggests a few additional reasons that might be at play. So poor people are more likely to be denied money because the damage to their home is deemed insufficient by FEMA. Hmm. And usually that's because the applicant can't prove that the disaster caused the damage. So the analysis actually suggests that the disparity could have something to do with the inspection process. Like Hmm. maybe inspectors are looking at the homes of poorer people and saying, this roof already needed maintenance, so a lot of this damage can't be blamed on the hurricane, for example. The other thing that might be at play is that people who can't prove that they personally own their home or that they're named Mm -hmm. on a lease, they are also cut off from assistance. So that might be accounting for some of this disparity.
2: So what about Donnie's spite situation? Where does her experience fit in?
1: Right. So her experience is probably tied to a third reason. So basically, FEMA isn't super focused on outcomes. Like, they assess how much damage you have. They give you an amount of money that they think is fair. And that's basically the end. You know, the agency isn't checking to make sure that you were actually able to get stable housing with that money. Now, that is less of a problem if you have savings or family members who can lend you money. But imagine if you're living on a fixed income or you have a disability or young kids. Getting insufficient help from FEMA can mean no safe place to live. And that can be really dangerous.
2: And it sounds like that's what happened to Donnie and her husband, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So when Hurricane Laura hit last August, Donnie and Steve sheltered in place in their mobile home, and there were 150 mile-an-hour winds. What was it like here during the storm, I guess? Did a lot of trees snap?
0: Oh, there was two big pines over there. Huge pines. One of them was the one that landed in the bedroom. Oh, gosh.
1: Yeah, Yeah, this tree put a two-foot hole in the bedroom ceiling. And it knocked out the electricity. It destroyed the air conditioner. And they really relied on the electricity for the electric Mm -hmm. lift that helped Donnie get Steve in and out of bed safely to charge his electric wheelchair and charge the nebulizer he needed to help him breathe. And it was dangerously hot in the house. The Spites did not have home insurance. They lived on a fixed income. Mm -hmm. They did not have the money to repair the damage on their own. So they applied for help from FEMA.
2: And presumably they hoped that FEMA would give them enough money to fix the hole in the roof and and get electricity and air conditioning as soon as possible. Right. What happened?
1: So Donnie says FEMA gave her $1,649. That was $1,200 to fix the roof, plus about $400 for a generator.
2: But after a big disaster, prices for repairs and equipment can really skyrocket.
1: Yeah, right. And actually... That's a good point. Donnie said that the cheapest generator she could find was $900. And a contractor told them that the roof repair would cost twice as much as FEMA gave them. They were living month to month on Social Security and Steve's benefits from the VA. Steve served in Vietnam. They used the savings they had to cover the cost of that generator. But the roof repair was out of their reach financially. So they lived with the hole in the bedroom ceiling all winter. And you can see the sky through this thing. Wow. This is Louisiana. It rains all the time. The water came right in. Plus, remember, there was that terrible deep freeze this winter.
2: Oh, very stressful circumstances for anyone. Um, But, I mean, for Donnie, she was caring for Steve through all this time.
1: Yeah, and doing her best, but, you know, she's 77 years old. She has arthritis. Mm. The damage in the house made everything harder, especially since the hole in the roof was right next to Steve's hospital bed in the bedroom. Mm. So caring for him was that much more difficult when the weather was bad. And this spring, Steve's health really
0: deteriorated. I I went through some hard times there with Steve, but we would have been married 39 years the second of this month. Wow,
1: that's a long time. Steve died in March. And Donnie says their final months together, they would have been calmer and easier if the house wasn't in such disrepair and if they'd gotten enough money to fix the damage.
2: And I imagine there are thousands of people like Donnie.
1: Yeah, actually, it's more like hundreds of thousands of low-income people who potentially don't get the help they need. And FEMA now acknowledges that the disparities in who receives disaster assistance, that those are a problem, which is a change. For decades, FEMA has argued that its disaster programs are fair. I interviewed Keith Turry. He is FEMA's assistant administrator for recovery.
2: We do understand our
1: obligation to support disaster survivors in an equitable way. Uh, That is a responsibility that we have here at FEMA. Uh, And candidly, we have work to do there
2: uh, and we're committed to following through on it.
1: He says the agency is studying these disparities. They are asking local officials for feedback about how people of different demographics are or aren't served by FEMA's current programs. Mm -hmm. And the new head of FEMA, Deanne Criswell, she testified before a subcommittee in Congress last week and said that equity is one of the top three priorities for the agency. But the agency didn't respond to questions from NPR about specific changes it's considering or what the timeline is for any of this.
2: Hmm. I mean, Becky, you've covered FEMA for a long time. What's your sense of whether things will change?
1: You know, it's hard to say. I think there are some basic things that we can look for. You know, will FEMA change its application process or eligibility requirements? Will it start publishing demographic information about who receives assistance? These are concrete things that the agency says it's considering, but it's too soon to know if they'll actually happen.
2: NPR climate reporter Rebecca Hersha, thank you for your incredible reporting and for bringing it to us. Always great to talk to you.
1: Thanks. Hi, shortwavers. It's me, back in the present. So, as I said at the beginning of the episode, this originally aired a little over a year ago. And since then, there's been more pressure on FEMA to start collecting demographic information about who applies for assistance and who gets what after a disaster. But so far, there's no public plan to start sharing that data. And a quick update on Donnie Spite. She still lives in De Quincey, and earlier this year, she used the money that FEMA gave her, plus money from private donations, to buy a used mobile home, and friends and family are helping her fix it up. She says there's still a ways to go. For one thing, it doesn't have any cabinets in the kitchen. Also, she says her dog, Goliath, has passed away.
2: This episode was produced by Britt Hansen and fact-checked by Kara.
1: Our editor is Giselle Grayson, the one and only. I'm Rebecca
2: Hersher. And I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, American Express Business. Take your business further with the Amex Business
1: Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. It's packed with enhanced benefits to
0: help unlock more business value. Learn more at americanexpress.com businessgoldcard. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.